0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's Talk Pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anon, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Freshwater angelfish, whose scientific name terophyllum means winged leaf, are a uniquely shaped member of the cichlid family from the Amazon and have been a favorite of hobbyists for decades, ever since they were first bred in the 1920s and 30s. My guest today is Matt Peterson, senior editor of Amazonas and Coral Magazine. An associate publisher with their parent company, Reef Terrain Forest Media. Join us as Matt explains how angelfish genetics translates into the numerous beautiful varieties that we see today. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Matt Peterson, Senior Editor of Amazonas and Coral Magazines and Associate Publisher with Reef to Rainforest Media, LLC. Our topic today is angelfish varieties and genetics. So Matt, you've been an aquarist and involved with fish for a a really long time. How did you first get interested in the hobby? And can you describe your first fish and your first aquarium?
1: Well, my parents got my brother and I a 10-gallon aquarium for Christmas, when I was uh, five years old, and uh, you know, it was the standard off-the-shelf ten-gallon aquarium kit. And uh, I think our first fish uh, included a zebra danio and some sort of Corydoras catfish. And uh, I stuck with it. My brother didn't have quite the interest, but I stuck with it. And by ten, I had converted that tank into a uh, into my first saltwater tank. So
0: now, do you remember what the aquarium hobby was like back then?
1: I remember that we would get the Sunday newspaper and in the Sunday newspaper every week, there was a TV, you know, TV guide for the week and smack in the middle of that TV guide, Noah's Ark Pet Center, the, uh, the chain that used to exist in Chicago would run a weekly spread. And every week I would rush to see what the special fish were that week. And, uh, that was back in the day when full line pet stores were absolutely the norm. And a lot of times they were in shopping malls. And I remember we'd always just begged my parents to go to the pet store just to look at fish and, and, you know, maybe, you know, getting one single new fish was just a real treat. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, definitely wasn't the same as it is today, but it was, uh, it was really a special thing to do uh, with, with my family and my, uh, my mom really put up with us for a long time.
0: (laughs) That's funny. You mentioned that, Um, you know, I'm from Chicago, obviously, as you know, and uh, I do remember Noah's Ark. So that's, that's a great (laughs) little memory there. So now I know you've, you've kind of had a lot of different things going on and you've been doing many different things, um, but what do you do for a living, kind of get our folks up to speed on, on how you ended up where you are now?
1: Okay, so how I ended up where I am now, I uh, I used to work in the aquarium trade through my teens and early 20s. Uh, I went briefly to study marine biology at uh, Eckerd down in uh, St. Petersburg. I really wanted to study marine aquaculture, and that was kind of a not really an easy field to find any available s- courses to study in. So I, I wound up leaving Eckerd and uh, coming back home, kind of, what am I going to do with my life? And I, I ended up being a software developer, an uh, internet guy, and... Uh, Did that for about 15 years and uh, was laid off last November. And this opportunity with uh, James and Reef to Rainforest just happened to be there. And so just very serendipitously wound up doing what I'm doing now with uh, Coral and Amazonas. So uh, uh, it kind of leverages... My background as an internet developer and as an interactive marketer, all those skills kind of just went back into uh, what I do for them. So it's really not that different, but I get to do it with a topic. You know, Instead of promoting the latest Crest toothbrush or Sunday shake for Burger King, I get to deal with fish stuff now. So it's a little more exciting.
0: So I guess the take home is that everything happens for a reason and you are in a great place right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I you know, I we, we were we were freaked out last uh last November. This was an unexpected layoff and uh really freaked us out, but uh things have worked out okay and I do feel a little bit like I'm a, I'm doing a lot of hustling these days to make ends meet, but uh I'm not I'm not disappointed at all.
0: Oh, well, that's great. You're really well known for all your marine fish breeding work, you know, for those of our listeners who maybe aren't quite as up to speed on the marine side so i guess tell us a little bit about the freshwater side you're um not quite as well known by some of the guys on the freshwater side
1: well no because i i you know the last time i was really heavily heavily into freshwater i was uh running an african cichlid hatchery with john baker you know basically i can't remember how many you know 100 or 200 tanks in his basement and uh we serviced the chicago market and so we we were importing fish. Uh, we were also breeding fish, and um, it was a lot of fun. But that was a uh, you know that was a, a, a wholesale slash hatchery setting, and it was not. Uh, I was not actively out there in the hobby talking about African cichlids or anything. But uh, I've had a long standing freshwater background. I just uh, haven't been uh, as vocal about it.
0: So you have worked a lot with both sides, of the uh, saltwater and freshwater uh, equation what would you say your favorite fish of all time is if can you make that uh that
1: statement it's tough because i like them all <laughs> um i i have to i'm sitting looking at the christmas tree right now in our living room and uh i don't know how old i was when i did this but i, I made a, a paper drawing of a uh, ketodon capistratus the uh, four-eyed butterfly fish and uh i remember being a kid making that drawing and then my mom xeroxing it taking it to school where she taught and laminating a bunch of them and then cutting them out and Making four-eyed butterfly fish Christmas ornaments for our tree, and I still have at least one of them around. And I'm trying to breed the species right now. It's uh, if, if there's any species I'd have to say I really couldn't live without. It's the four-eyed butterfly fish.
0: No, that's great. It's definitely a beautiful fish. So let's go back to the angels, the freshwater angels. Now, well, what would you say before we kind of get into the heavy angelfish discussion? What would your favorite angelfish species or variety be?
1: Well, my favorite species is definitely the uh, the altum. Uh, The wild form of the Altum is just a a breathtaking fish. And it takes what we already kind of know as the typical angelfish and just takes it to a a much more extreme, you know, in terms of height and size and boldness of pattern. So definitely that's my favorite species out of the the three. And uh, as far as varieties, I'm really... I kind of go back and forth because there's so many different varieties. There's really no one that I could put my finger on and say, well, that's my favorite.
0: Okay, that's a cop-out, but we'll give that to you. (laughs) So uh, what made you guys all decide to focus on Freshwater Angels for the current issue of Amazonas?
1: Well, I should probably give some background on how Amazonas and, and Coral work as well. Both of them are originally German publications. And um, so what happens is we get an issue of Coral or an issue of Amazonas that's originally in German and it gets translated. So the, to some extent, the feature is already determined and we are just able to kind of add and subtract what we see fit to create the English edition. So I want to say this this German issue of uh, that featured Angelfish I think it ran six months to a year ago, maybe longer. I'm not sure when it ran, but it was finally up in the rotation. So another cop-out answer for you, we really didn't decide. It just is, you know, the one that we were, that we were ready to, to work with. But the interesting thing about both of these magazines is that they do tend to take and feature on a particular topic for a given issue. So, for example, the most recent issue of coral uh, featured giant clams as the main cover story. So there will be several articles on that topic. This angelfish issue for Amazonas, I want to say, has four or five uh, angelfish articles. When I first started getting coral years ago, I was actually kind of disappointed by that. And I I found it off-putting because it's like, oh, I'm getting the Gorgonian issue. I don't keep Gorgonians and I don't like Gorgonians. And this is, you know, it kind of almost felt like a waste. Now that was a very young, naive point of view because I now have the entire gamut of coral start to finish. And uh, if I, I, I now happen to keep Gorgonians. So when I started keeping Gorgonians, I went to my shelf, I pulled that Gorgonian issue and I read it cover to cover. So it's a different approach to a magazine and it ends up, covering things in in a bit more in depth than you might get in other publications. And I found that in the long run, it creates a wonderful library and really gives you much better insights into a particular topic. So just because, just because that, that particular month's topic doesn't really interest you when you get it, read it, or at least put it on the shelf because there may be a time when you want it.
0: Yeah, I uh, definitely agree with you. I really do like the, uh, the way that they focus on specific areas and go in much more detail. And, you know, obviously the stories are great and the, uh, Photography is always, you know, breathtaking. So definitely, definitely, you guys do a great job. When I was going through yours and some of the other really good articles in the issue, I was, you know, I was amazed by all the work that's been done on uh, just angelfish varieties and genetics in general, and you know, on their differences in appearance. I kind of knew some of it, but not really a lot. So let me start with a a real basic question. What would be your description of the difference between a strain or variety and a species?
1: Well, (laughs) when we talked about this offline, I kind of said I'm not really qualified to answer that question because I think a lot of the taxonomists these days have a difficult time uh, answering the question of what is a species. I was talking with Dr. Luis Roca at Steinhardt about speciation and the definition of a species, and he has a slide and a presentation he gives They have 38 different metrics by which you can determine what a species is. That's 38 different individual topics. We have this classic definition, and I think most people, at least on the surface, you kind of understand that a species is a group of like organisms that interbreed and mate with each other to the exclusion of other similar or related organisms or unrelated organisms. And we generally use that in a framework of what happens in the wild. One of my other interests uh, that I'm very heavily interested in is orchids. And all the orchids uh, will freely hybridize with each other and cross species boundaries, but only in captivity where there's a a breeder like me with a toothpick that walks over to one plant and says, I'm going to take the pollen off of this one, put it in my fridge for two months. And when this other one blooms, I'll take that pollen out, throw it on that flower, and we'll create a hybrid. That doesn't happen in nature. There's barriers that prevent that hybridization, be it geographic or the pollinators. And so these two plants in nature are separate species. I was raised on the notion that species can't hybridize and produce viable offspring. But that I think that notion at, at this point is pretty well disregarded, and we kind of look differently at what a species is today. I think the main thing to, to get across is that species is a man-made construct. It's a, a taxonomist saying I'm going to give this group of animals this name based on these characteristics. And someone else can come along and say, I don't agree. And I think it's two species you have here or five species you have here. Or this isn't a new species. It's just another population of this other species. So it is, to some extent, an arbitrary man-made bucket. And I think we kind of have to remember that sometimes. That you know what a species is, is fluid and can change and isn't necessarily a permanent thing.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to put you on the spot then and, and uh, ask you about how many species of angelfish would be or are kind of being recognized in the wild now.
1: Uh, currently, there's three. Altum, Scarlare, and Dumerillii, I believe is how you would say it. There's been another couple ones that have been proposed. We kind of use, as a first reference, a lot of times uh, in a lot of the different groups that I work in, we, we look at uh, fish base as kind of like the de facto first place to look for taxonomy because it is, to some extent, relatively kept current. And so currently there's three recognized species, but there's potentially four or five or even two dozen species out there uh, when we look at Heiko Blair's article in Amazonas he talks about all the different geographic variants that are found around South America and while we might consider half a dozen of these geographic variants to be the same species today we might do some genetic testing or some further investigation and say whoa no these are seven different species of angelfish these are not all uh, not all the same and an interesting thing that again Dr. Roca pointed out to me was that the species is the, the base unit for conservation. Uh, when we talk about you know whether something's an endangered species or is in need of protection or whatever the case may be, the species, as defined taxonomically, is, is what governments use as, as kind of the base unit. So if you're concerned at all, That you might lose one of the seven special geographic variants of scalaire, you may make the effort to determine that it is a separate species because then it warrants uh, conservation. Whereas otherwise, well, it's just one population of a species. And if it goes away, it's not the uh, end of the world. So there's, you know, understanding that point of view, it makes a lot of sense. It pushes us towards a splitter mentality when it comes to taxonomy defining many many more species versus fewer and fewer and lumping like things together but it's also arbitrary and it's also you know as there's a political aspect to it it's uh, you know as long as science prevails and says that we're not doing this solely for uh, political reasons but there's a legitimate scientific uh, basis for this determination it makes sense uh, but it's a very interesting and uh Unique way of looking at what at the concept of what a species is.
0: So uh, I think it's generally accepted that I guess the the common domesticated variety is primarily Scolari,
1: correct? Well, yeah, I mean, but again, it's kind of interesting because for the listeners who are familiar with, for example, uh, Trophius in Lake Tanganyika, and you know the fact that at one point there were considered four species, and now there's considered six species, and then we have endless amounts of geographical variants within those species, uh, at least. You know something like 30 or 40 varieties breeders of trophies keep all those varieties separate and one of the reasons for doing so is you don't really know uh, whether they one day will be considered a, a new species or a different species outwardly they are not all exactly the same as far as appearances are, are concerned what we have in the domesticated angelfish is probably the equivalent of taking a whole bunch of different types of trophies and kind of throwing them all together So when we look back at Haiko's article and we see, oh, there's some really unique angelfish varieties, those could one day be considered a separate species. And at that point, we would look at the domesticated angelfish and technically say it might be a hybrid or a cocktail of one or more unique angelfish species or varieties. So that's something I kind of alluded to in my article when I talked about the conservation merits of uh, domesticated angelfish. You know, it could go either way. And uh, it might take some genetic testing. We might come back and say, you know what? It is absolutely scalare, but I couldn't definitively say that it is solely scalare at this point. It could be what we might consider a cocktail of species.
0: Before we take a break, I just wanted to ask
1: one quick question. We'll talk
0: more about varieties and, and some of the genetics, but can you talk a little bit about the requirements, basic requirements for angelfish and you know, do they differ depending on where they're coming from, whether they're wild or farm-raised, any kind of information on that?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, the domesticated angelfish that I've worked with have been fish that relative to some of the other things I've worked with, they're bulletproof. If you can get good, healthy, quality angelfish, they will tolerate most water conditions they're tropical fish, obviously. So that, you know, temperatures in the upper 70s uh, Fahrenheit is appropriate. Naturally occurring, they are soft water, uh, acidic pH fish, uh, and they would prefer that. But you know, there's people. Roy, you're familiar with Chicago's tap water, I would assume, It's you know, liquid rock. And there are right. people, there are people who breed angelfish in Chicago's tap water. And the, when I was working in, in the retail setting back in Chicago, I would buy a lot of my fish from the general wholesalers but I wouldn't necessarily purchase angelfish in from the chain of custody at large. I was always purchasing my angelfish from local breeders who raised them in local water. And the advantage being those fish were perfectly suited to go out into the tanks of the people who were purchasing them with no special care whatsoever. So I can make the case to say that You can get a good angelfish from a farmer or from Asia, but I think the best angelfish you're going to get is the one that's done by a local breeder in your local tap water or the one that's done by a specialist breeder who's really pushing for quality in their fish and not mass production. As far as tank space, the general rule that the angelfish community has kind of come up with is as adults, one adult angelfish per 10 gallons of tank uh, volume. So a 75-gallon tank, they may say seven or eight angelfish is about the amount of fish that that tank can hold. Being cichlids, they do have some aggressive tendencies, uh, They, but that's generally breeding-related. Um, I keep many angelfish together, and the only time aggression comes out is when you have a fish or a pair of fish that are trying to, uh, to set up shop to spawn. So as long as you understand that that's really where the aggression is coming from, you can segregate out the pair or split the pair. And I also do think that in some respects having multiple targets to diffuse that aggression uh, is important. So just from my own personal observations, I might be comfortable putting one or more adult angelfish in 10 gallons of water <laughs> you know, in a large community setting to, again, diffuse that aggression. So I might personally try putting 14 or 16 adult angelfish in a 75-gallon tank, but that's me. Um, and I would be doing the appropriate maintenance for that. As far as water quality is concerned... Angelfish don't like dissolved organic pollution. They like clean water. So frequent water changes is all that's really necessary to to keep them happy. Um, I do my fish from down here. I do 50% water changes every week on all the angelfish, and uh, they're all doing great. Obviously, they'll eat little tiny fish. You know, neon tetras, uh, guppies are fair game in my book. But the interesting thing is, some people say that if you raise young angelfish with these small fish, they won't look at them as food when they turn adult. I mean, but other than that, they're just, they're wonderful centerpiece fish for community tanks. I can't sing the praises of domesticated angelfish enough. They're just simply a, a, a classic fish, unlike any other. All of that I just said about domesticated angelfish really doesn't apply to wild angelfish. The altums that I have downstairs. When I got them, I was told I needed to keep them in a pH below 5.0 uh, with almost zero hardness in my water whatsoever. I found that to be very problematic <laughs> to handle. I pH crashed at least one of the tanks, so I've I've kind of gotten away from that. But I, I use katapa leaves in their tanks to uh, help condition the water and add some of the tannins uh, and other chemicals that seem to help. So really. It's the whole spectrum. You can have a very robust, easy to take care of angelfish in a locally produced domestic angelfish, or you can go to a wild angelfish that may have problems with parasites and disease susceptibility uh, and really be quite demanding in terms of water chemistry and care. So you have the full range.
0: Well, thanks for that. I think we have to take a short break, but we'll come back discuss much more about the specific genetics and some of the uh, really beautiful varieties that are now available with uh, with Matt Peterson of Amazonas Magazine. After these messages from our sponsors, Molly, here's your dinner. <laughs> Zeus, that's not your food. purchase your cat tree tray today go right now to cat tree com. that's cat tree dot c-a-t-t-r-e-e-t-r-a-y.com
1: let's talk pets let's talk pets on pet life radio
0: pet life radio pet life radio dot com <laughs> We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Matt Peterson, on Angelfish Varieties and Genetics. So Matt, you gave us a really great kind of synopsis of what's required and you know, the hardiness of angels. Let's talk a little bit more about genetics. Joanne Norton is fairly well known by the Angelfish folks. Can you tell us a little bit about why Joanne Norton is such a special person?
1: Yeah, Dr. Norton wrote something like 18 articles in FAMA, which is Freshwater Aquarium magazine. I can't remember the acronym. <laughs> uh, a freshwater and right. marine aquarium, freshwater yeah. marine aquarium, and those articles basically were her efforts to look at the angelfish varieties that were floating around in the hobby, um, and and really working on decoding their genetics through not through genetic testing, but through basic breeding and testing and offspring counts and observing the phenotypes and observing how these different outward examples of coloration and pattern interacted with each other and on their own. And through those 18 articles, she basically laid out this um, body of work that said, here's how the angelfish uh, genetics that we have work. And suddenly, once you realize how the genetics work, you don't lose traits and you can can really kind of look at the angelfish as a painter's canvas. The breeder can take certain genes from certain fish, put them together to create something new, something different. really is a different approach to breeding than just a haphazard. Well, I like this one and I like this other one. Uh, Let's put them together and see what we get. You can really take a very scientific and analytical approach to your angelfish breeding now because of the work that she did.
0: So tell us about the Angelfish Society and uh, what they do.
1: Well, the Angelfish Society uh, is a uh, hobbyist-formed organization. Um, they're actually having their board elections right now as, as we're talking. It's been around, I want to say, since 2003 officially. And uh, basically, the Angelfish Society took Dr. Norton's work and used it to set up a standard to talk about genetics and to give a, a standardized genetic shorthand by which to talk about these individual genes. They also set other standards they're involved with the ACA uh, and showing angelfish and basically doing other ancillary things you might expect a, an interest group like this to do. But really, for me, the, the real thing they bring to the table is this, here's Dr. Norton's work, here's what we know about it, here's how we talk about it, and really standardizing that and making it prevalent and available to breeders. That's probably, my my opinion, the most valuable thing they've done is just to say, we're all going to use the same language here. We're all going to talk about this the same way. That, as you know, as a scientist, that's uh, really crucial to just be able to talk across languages uh, and across interest groups to have a shared standardized methodology of doing that. That's really what TAS does.
0: So let's do that now. Um, obviously, uh, the appearance and just, you know, the beautiful varieties that are available are ultimately come down to genetics. So can you give our listeners a genetics primer? Nothing that's going to be too, uh, too scary for them, but that kind of gives them an idea when we talk a little bit more about some of these varieties.
1: Okay, so genetics primer. If you took biology in high school, you probably at some point studied the Punnett Square and Mendelian genetics and Gregor Mendel, and probably the trait that was given to you as an example was albino or albinism. And um, so basically here's how it works. You have a locus, which is a, a place in the genetic code that controls one specific thing. So for example, we have an albino locus, And the locus, uh, basically, you get one allele or gene from each parent. So your dad can contribute an albino allele or a regular wild-type allele. And then depending on the combination of uh, alleles you inherit from your parents, that will determine the genotype that you have. So those genes together will determine the phenotype, the outward expression, what you see on the surface. There's three types of expression that we deal with in the simple genetics. The first one I'm going to talk about is recessive because that's the one we, we all kind of should be familiar with through albinism, which is a recessive trait. So the way albinism works is you could get a regular wild type gene from both parents. And in TAS notation, that is a symbolized with a plus sign. That's the default normal look of the fish. If you have two wild-type alleles, you are not an albino. You do not look albino. You look like a regular fish. If you inherit a single albino allele from one of your parents and you get the wild-type allele from the other parent, because this is a recessive trait, you don't see anything. There's no change. You are still outwardly a regular fish. But Breeders will say you are heterozygous for albino. You carry a single hidden albino gene. And you have a 50-50 shot of transferring that along to your offspring. If you get an albino gene from both your mother and your father, you now have two of them and you will be an albino fish. And that's a recessive trait. It requires two doses of the allele or gene to express the end result. The second type of expression that I'm going to talk about is dominant expression, which is very easy to understand. It all works the same way. The one difference being you only need one copy of the non-wild allele for this, uh, whatever the trait is to to be fully expressed. And the easiest one to talk about in angelfish uh, is the uh, zebra uh, allele, which is on the zebra-slash-stripless locus. If you get one dose of that zebra gene, you will be a zebra angelfish. If you have two doses, you will still be a zebra angelfish. You will only not be a zebra angelfish if you have no doses of that allele. And then the third type, and the one that's actually... Probably the most prevalent in some shape or form is what we call partial dominance. And partial dominance simply means that if you have one dose of a, an allele, you will get a certain level of that trait. If you get a second dose of that allele, you will have a different end result in the phenotype and how you look. So a really good example is the stripless allele, which is also an available mutation on the zebra or stripeless locus. And if you get a single dose of the stripeless allele, you will be a ghost angelfish. If you get two doses, you will become a blusher. And so what it looks like outwardly is the ghost angelfish has highly reduced striping uh, on the body. It still has a fair amount of black on the fins. But once you put in that second stripless allele, almost all of the black in the body is gone. You'll still have some in the, in the fins. Um, the gill covers will turn transparent. And you can see the uh the gills through them, thus the phenotype name that's been given to this fish as a blusher or a blushing angelfish because they have these bright red cheeks. so that's really the the basis for how the genetics work, the three types of expressions, and then I can run you through the uh, through all the locusts really quick if you'd like to have a rundown of them.
0: yeah, yeah, that would be great and and you know to describe obviously the uh the result what the fish look like with regard to those loci.
1: Okay, okay. So, so first off, we mentioned the albino locus and you're you either have a wild type or an albino gene An albino fish we shall be familiar with, you know, pink eyes, no uh, no melanin production. The dark locus has a number of different alleles. This is where you can have fish uh become marbles or blacks and golds as well, and you have at this dark locus, it's one of the most complex ones you have Five different alleles that could be floating around, five different, four mutations in the wild type. So, dark marble, gold marble, and gold. Uh, A goldfish, you know, for example, is recessive. It takes two doses of that gold gene, and you get a fish that's basically silver and yellow. Conversely, you have two doses of the dark gene. You have a very uh, black angelfish. Moving on, you have the half black locust, which just has either the wild type or the half black allele. And if a fish is uh, double dosed for half black, it looks like the rear of the fish was dipped in black paint. The whole back half of the fish is black. The pearl scale locus has a recessive trait called pearl scale, which basically causes the scales of an angelfish to kind of look like crinkled tinfoil. That's the way I would describe it. You have the smoky locus, which has a a smoky allele, which causes it looks like smoke on the fish. There's no other way to describe it. And that's a partially dominant. Traits. So a single dose of the smoky, you have a smoky angelfish, a double dose. Uh, most of the angelfish at that point is covered with this brown smoke pattern, and it's called a chocolate. You have a streak locus, which causes uh, basically lightning bolts, for lack of a better term, in the, in the dorsal and anal fin. One of the most, uh, the one I talked about earlier, the zebra or the stripless locus, which basically affects body striping. And then the veiled locus, which is a uh, partially dominant veiled Uh, allele that's available to you so what the veiled locust does is if you have a a standard fish a wild type fish the fins are just regular length if you have a single dose of the veil allele the dorsal fin the anal fin the ventral fins and the caudal fin all are elongated and if you double dose that fish you end up with a super veil and the fins uh, the finnage is just elongated exponentially more so in a nutshell those are the The different loci or loci that are canonized at this point, and I'm counting them up, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One of the newest ones that's kind of come around is this Philippine blue, which could be our ninth understood locus. And so in a nutshell, Philippine blue is either partially dominant or recessive, and it puts a blue sheen on the fish. We don't know the exact workings of it yet. People are still working on it, but we do know that in a double dose, it puts a really nice blue sheen on the fish. So you have all that you have nine loci or loci, and you have all these different alleles that can be present. And what happens is when you start mixing multiple ones together, you just create endless varieties of angelfish. So you can have a a blue smoky veil or a uh, black pearl scale, or or any number of combinations to create something unique. So really, the mastery of this genetic code really just opens up the possibilities to creating whatever you can imagine within that framework. And um, I I wrote in my article that the rules of this are no more complicated than poker. And I actually think they're pretty, they're they're much more simple than poker. I can't play a good game of poker, but I can understand these genetics.
0: Well, that was a great summary. Um, Now, the varieties are obviously all really beautiful. And you mentioned all the different types of uh, mixes you can get. Are there any concerns about inbreeding and maybe the effect on health or uh Viability even of of the you know the offspring.
1: Oh, ab- absolutely! I mentioned that that double dark angelfish when it has two doses of the dark allele at the at the uh, dark locus. These double dark angelfish are reportedly not the best fish in terms of offspring viability. But interestingly. If you have an angelfish that carries a dark allele and then a gold allele, the gold allele being recessive is hidden and then masked by the dark allele, which is a uh, dominant allele. So you end up with a black angelfish that is what we call a hybrid black. It's not a double dose black. And these are much more robust, according to the breeders who work with them. As far as inbreeding is concerned, and and just to define inbreeding for someone who doesn't know, a very simple explanation would be mating brother to sister over multiple generations. So this pair of angelfish has children. We take two, we mate them together. We take their children, mate them together, and we go on down the line. What that happens to do is it causes the concentration of, of alleles, and that can be good or bad. You know, you can line breed and you might discover a new new genetic trait because it was floating around and it's recessive and it takes a fish having two doses in order for that trait to actually show up. And a good case might be this new emerging Bulgarian green gene that we're looking at now. And that was found through line breeding. But at the same token, you could, instead of finding some new color variant, you could find some new allele that ensures every fish in your line gets cancer. So it's a double-edged sword. That's the problem with with line breeding. You're concentrating both the good and bad genetics in in one direction. The beauty of being able to understand these genetic traits is that you can outcross with a great deal of certainty that you will not lose a trait. So for example, if I'm working with a line of albino angelfish and I've been line breeding them for a few generations and they're getting weak and I'm... I'm getting short fins and small bodies and I don't like that. I can take that albino fish and cross it out to an unrelated line or even let's uh, use a wild type fish, a wild fish for example. I can take that albino fish, cross it to that wild fish and every single one of their offspring is going to outwardly appear normal. But I know that every single one of their offspring must have a single hidden albino gene in it. So, if I take and then breed a pair of those offspring back together, in that second generation, I'll have 25% albinos. I'll be right back where I started. But the really the beautiful part is hopefully I'll have also selected for traits that correct the, the faults in my line. So, you know, the short fins or the small body. Maybe I've, I've gone back to a fish that now has, it's still albino, but I've restored some of the vigor and the idealized proportions of an angelfish back to what it should have been. You can't do that without understanding how the genetics work. But if you understand how the genetics work, you can really remake just about any angelfish phenotype in about two generations. And you can really ensure that you're not inbreeding excessively and you can strengthen a line or or add something to it that you didn't want prior. You know, I don't like the pearl scale mutation. But I could ten years down the line change and say, "I really would like to put some pearl scale on these other fish, well, because I know how the genetics work, I could go find the appropriate brood stock to work with and put that trait into my my strain of fish that i 'm working on it 's a really amazing thing once you realize what the the base understanding of these genetics do for a breeder the the possibilities are endless
0: well unfortunately we 're out of time, but you know that was a great, great, incredible introduction, and you know obviously. Uh, I encourage everyone to pick up the latest issue of Amazonas Magazine for more insights into the genetics as well as angelfish in general. I want to thank our guest, Matt Peterson, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Matt, do you have any final words or information or wisdom you want to impart
1: to our listeners? First, Roy, Mark, I want to thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you guys. And I don't know, I I just say that You know, as if you're going to try breeding anything, uh, one of my big messages, both in the marine and and freshwater world, is to really be conservation-minded in your breeding. Think about what you're doing in terms of what it may, the ramifications it may have for the species that we treasure. I mentioned it kind of earlier that the domestic angelfish breeding we're doing probably isn't really doing much to conserve any particular type of wild angelfish. But there are breeders now who are working with wonderful geographic strains of angelfish. And um, it's really important, in my opinion, because it creates a a repository, kind of an archive, if you will, for that unique wild biodiversity. So as wonderful as I think these designer angelfish are, I still have uh, you know, a soft spot in my heart for keeping my individual inner Rita strain altums to themselves and making sure that that geographic line uh, remains pure. And uh, there's room for both. That's where I've kind of found myself landing is both are good for the hobby and just try not to step on each other's toes.
0: That sounds great. Thanks again for joining us, Matt. Thank you. Please be sure to check out Matt's webpage links on Aquariumania and visit my Aquariumania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D R R O Y at petliferadio.com. If you're over in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. And be sure to check out my new book, An Animal Life, a novel written by me and three close friends and inspired by our time in veterinary school. Go to ananimallife.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. And keep an eye out for angels. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand.